My name is Adam Gardner. Uh, this is Alex Smith, and we'll be your hosts this evening. Um, we're here at Hassel Studio in Melbourne, which is on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Um, as we engage in tonight's discussion, I'd like to recognise that for more than 65,000 years, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been the original custodians of the lands and waterways across this entire continent. I want to recognise the privilege and the responsibility that we all have to design with and care for country. And so I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. I'd like to thank them for taking care of this land that we continue to work, live and play on today. So now I'll hand over to Alex who will give an overview of what we're talking about. Thanks, Adam. So tonight we uh, want to take a deep dive into the potential of two key precincts. Parkville, which is, you know, home of uh, one of the world's leading biomedical innovation precincts and Arden, which is really sort of the next step in that innovation ecosystem. And, and we know there's significant institutions developing to help catalyse and shape these precincts. There's transport, health, research and education, and there's also a substantial need for places for people to, to live and work to support these places. So we're thrilled to have brought together a pretty remarkable and diverse panel to explore the threads and systems and in-between spaces that will really have the potential to hold these places together. So tonight we're going to have a panel discussion. Um, I'll pass on to Adam now to introduce our guests. Yeah, so as Alex mentioned, we've got a very special uh, guest panel this evening and I won't steal their thunder and I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves as well as their connection to Arden and Parkville and innovation precincts more generally. Thanks, Adam. Um, I'm Mina Kuba, Director of Kuba. Um, we are a design practice that focuses on transport, public and cultural projects. And my link to Parkville and Arden is that I was part of the design team for the stations with Hassel for over five years. So this was my home for a long time. So it's lovely to be here. I'm Professor Dan Hill. I'm the director of Melbourne School of Design, which is the grad school in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. So my relationship is proximal from that thing on the right-hand side there. Um, up at the top of that campus, the Melbourne Uni bit of it. Um, my background is a designer and an urbanist, and I've worked on innovation districts um, all over the place, from Amsterdam to the Google campuses, to Imperial College in London, Glasgow University, um, Sidewalk Labs, and blah, 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 blah. Lots of them, anyway. <laughs> um, so I'm really um, excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Interested to see what we make of these two in particular. See if I can do this as artfully as you, Dan. Um, my name is Helen Day. I'm a principal advisor in the strategic master planning unit in the health infrastructure branch in the Victorian Department of Health. Big mouthful. And um, my journey really started with um, Arden uh, at the City of Melbourne, in fact, when I was leading the urban design team then, and we embarked on the Arden Macaulay strategic um, structure plan. And since that time, I've had various involvements on that journey. So I have sort of an appreciation of the great depth and effort that has gone into what is looking to be a really um, well-shaped precinct with high innovation capability for Melbourne. And currently, um, the role that I perform in the Strategic Master Planning Unit is to um, our team 
shapes the business cases to get the investment into um, the likes of Arden and Parkville, which fortunately we've been successful in doing. So you would have seen some announcements for some fairly significant um, hospital-related infrastructure in those two precincts. And then from that is this really important work around the investment that those um, public, significant public um, investments attract into those precincts, um, which is a new emerging space. Hello, I'm Amy Haas. I'm a senior lecturer in urban horticulture at the University of Melbourne. Um, my connection, uh, my background is urban biodiversity. Um, I've spent a long time looking at how urban environments impact on plants and animals, um, but more excitingly, how do we bring that knowledge forward to actually shape how we design and manage and construct our urban environments for people and more than human. <laughs> um, so my connection with these precincts, um, I have a long connection with the Parkville um, campus of the University of Melbourne, but um, more specifically, um, I've looked at biodiversity distributions across both of these landscapes and the intervening spaces um, quite a lot. Um, and I was involved in developing the living infrastructure plan for the Metro Tunnel project, um, and uh, particularly trying to think about um, in a very constrained public realm for a major project, what, what are the opportunities for bringing in more nature? Um, so um, a, a, I've kind of lost touch with where it is now, but I'm very excited to kind of reconnect. Hello, everybody. My name's Sally Cap. I'm the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and I'm delighted to be here with you all this afternoon. Uh, well, both precincts are in our municipality. I think our connection is very direct in that sense. Uh, but of course, when we look at these precincts, one which is well established and one which is to be established, uh, there's very much the sense of how do we achieve both the uh, more immediate operational outcomes that we seek uh, as a local government, but also those longer-term strategic outcomes that we have across many of our policies and programs. And uh, so for us, these precincts are absolutely integral to what we're doing today and how we shape the future. Thank you. Thank you. Shall we kick off the discussion? So, Sally, we've got a question for you first. Um, could you explain a little bit about what the drivers are of implementation of these two precincts? And I guess more specifically, what are the sort of levers and, and mechanisms that government can push to create value for uh, the community beyond the borders of these two precincts? Mm. Two huge questions to kick us off. Uh, please excuse my daggy analogy here, uh, but given that this is a biomedical innovation health uh, precinct, I look at it as uh, the way in which atoms come together uh, to form a molecule, and you want molecules to work well together so that they can create chemical reactions. And what we want to see across these two precincts and the surrounding areas is the most incredible explosion uh, that looks like a well-coordinated, well-designed fireworks display uh, and not something that disappoints. 
from our perspective, there are natural tensions, and I see them in, in some of the, um, the topics that are up on the, the screen. There are natural tensions that we're dealing with each and every day on what we want to achieve in our city. I mentioned some of them earlier, but uh, we need more places for people to live. Uh, there's a housing crisis. We want to drive economic uh, outcomes and the sense of job opportunities in the city through things like R&D and commercialisation, as well as key industries like medical. Uh, uh, how do we deliver uh, on the tensions that exist between those? We must, uh, in the context of the uh, neighbourhoods surrounding these precincts, make sure that we are juggling what the ongoing public infrastructure needs are as we support private development in these areas. And there are always natural tensions there, which I'll just keep saying, good design can solve all of these issues. So I'm all ears tonight, panellists. Uh, and uh, we're very mindful of the fact that the ambitions and aspirations we all have when we're looking at brownfield site like brownfield sites like Arden or infill sites like uh, Parkville is that we want to make sure it can deliver on what our locals need, so that functionality, but we want it to have global reputation where possible because that acts as a magnet for all of the resources, whether it's uh, ongoing investment or it's talent attraction, for example, into the future. Those tensions also need to come together. Key elements for us across those strategies I was talking about, uh, we are driving economic uh, revitalisation, still uh, aiming to those $150 billion city economy by 2031. That means an extra 100,000 jobs in our municipality with tens of thousands to be located here in these precincts around specialised uh, uh, sectors, which is exciting. Uh, we know uh, that we're expecting an extra 100,000 residents in our municipality to drive those outcomes. But within this housing crisis, governments need to play a really strong role on social and key worker affordable housing. And we think we have to be really ambitious in sites like Arden to achieve uh, those outcomes. Transport, well, this precinct actually is very well serviced and fantastic investment in transport, but we need to make sure we're leveraging that. And at the moment, I think we feel a sense uh, of frustration about how that timing is coming together and how we can actually accelerate to make sure we're maximising that investment in transport. But just on transport, apart from train stations and trams, uh, it is active transport and making sure that these precincts remain accessible and porous in that way uh, so that they are connected uh, and engaged. I know I'm hitting all the highlights here. I guess that's why I got this first question. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to also finish with sustainability. If it's not at the core of everything that we're delivering now, there is absolutely no way we're going to reach our municipal milestones of 100% renewable energy by 2030, uh, net zero by 2040, but sustainable ways in which we can live and work and play together. Uh, for Parkville, that's a retrofit um, question, and how do we do more to electrify 
Um, I'm looking for people to help me with a viral video uh, to that song. It's electrifying. Any volunteers tonight would be well received. Uh, but in Arden, we have an opportunity to do it well from the start. Uh, and uh, just to go back to that sense of explosion or that chemical reaction, it does come through tensions and when things collide and we've got all of that and more here um, to bring back to design. Design is absolutely fundamental to how we do that well. Uh, and uh, we've got examples here of how design can help us with retrofit in existing suburbs to achieve those uh, competing agendas, if you like, and also starting with something that's a relatively blank canvas. And I just want to say again, our community has very high, not just aspirations, but expectations on what we can deliver here. And there is the expertise and experience in this room to do that well. And from a government perspective, how do we unleash more of that? You talked about implementation. I think from a state and local government, um, a little bit more of standing aside and how we do that well um, would be good to talk about. Then I can share it with all my colleagues. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks, Sally. Um, and to build on that, you mentioned that Parkville is recognised globally as a leading biomedical and research precinct. And then right next door, we've got Arden, you know, one of Melbourne's biggest and most ambitious urban renewal projects. Um, so to open this question up to anyone on the panel, um, how do you envision the relationship between these two sites unfolding? You know, are they actually one connected symbiotic precinct that relies on each other or are they two distinctly different precincts? Well, I think that can be both. I'll kick off. Um, of course, uh, we want to know that each of these precincts has its own, we are saying earlier, characteristics. What are the quirks uh, that will make it renowned, will give it personality, will attract the people that we seek. Uh, and I think uh, being thoughtful about that at the start is important. But as we know across our municipality, I mean, we've divided ourselves into 11 neighbourhoods. They have their own distinctive elements, but the, um, the efficiencies and the, uh, the brilliance uh, of what we can achieve together comes with the ways that they complement, mm. uh, that they connect, but also in the ways that they collide. So I think um, setting ourselves up well for that uh, is important and it goes across those, those areas. So just to kick yeah. off with some nodding heads. Yeah, I can, I can maybe follow up with that. I think I like your analogy of the atoms and the transfer of the sort of Brownian motion from one to the other. Um, and I think where we're heading with innovation districts increasingly is moving away from that almost 1960s idea of this is a specialised area here and it's different to this one and this one, yeah. Fisherman's Bend is industry and that one is commerce and this bit is housing. You know, that's slowly leaving the system as a way of thinking in Melbourne, hopefully. And therefore, what we're left with is both of these areas need to be, they both need to be good chunks of city, I would say, ultimately. They both need to be great bits of city, mm. actually. And one might be flavoured a little bit more biomedical and the other one might be flavoured with something else. But they both need to have these basic outcomes. They both need to be super innovative. Just, but just like every other district in Melbourne, it will also be innovative, right? Um, they all need to deliver social fabric. They all need to have elements of housing and commerce and all of these things. They all need, to, as you, Sally, you did hit all of the 
things on the, on the list. You know, it's, they all need to be effectively, ultimately, largely post-car. Active transport, mobility, heavy amount of biodiversity coming through, nature-inclusive design. So, so what you're left with then is a, is, a, is a set of conditions that any meaningful urban district is moving towards increasingly. We sort of, we, as you said, in the room, there's a pretty fairly collective or shared understanding of what that might be. Um, and then it's a case of then how do you, how do you let then the characters of those places come through and evolve over time? And that's what people then do with that kit. Mm -hmm. So we can make great streets in both of them. But what people decide to do in that streets, that should be up to them. And that's when we'll get that diversity and the, you know, the different flavoring of the place, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So if this set of consistent conditions, they're all super sustainable, they only need to generate health, they only need to generate nature, and then incredibly participative so that they can find their own futures ultimately over time. From a biodiversity perspective, um, it's really interesting their complementarity but also their distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. So um, in Arden, it's down in the floodplains connected to Mooney Ponds Creek Corridor, um, whereas Parkville is more upland, uh, traditionally a headwater of a catchment. Um, and so I, I know that water and green space are a really key consideration in the designs. Um, and traditionally, or, you know, these different types of communities are distinct, but they grade into and out of each other. So um, having, yeah, like Royal Park, um, this area of Melbourne, there aren't a lot of existing really strong biodiversity corridors, um, but there's great opportunity in wide streets, big nature strips, in engaging and evolving community and kind of seeing an above-ground connection between the two. Mm. Everyone who works in precincts gets that full appreciation that they're incredibly complex. And to that point, I really do like the Brookings Institute's framework for having a discussion about precincts, and that is really consideration of those physical and spatial attributes, the networking and, and partnership attributes, and then the economic attributes broadly. And I think... Um, perhaps this is a bit agent provocateur and pointing to Sally's the tension. I actually do think that um, with the health investments, there is something very specific about the types of investment that governments need to pursue in terms of that, um, broadly speaking, life sciences or health tech space. And I think... Um, there is a role, I think, for government in that, but that's not to say that some of those other attributes won't be forthcoming, and I think design has a really strong um, role to play in that. And so back to sort of the, the question for, for Parkville, I think that the, the hospital, you know, and what is very interesting about that space in Parkville is it's quite full. <laughs> We're heading to a point where really it is full, and we know that in a period of high awareness about sustainability. We can't just keep um, pulling things down and pushing them. So I think Arden has that really important role of being the release valve um, to Parkville. Mm. But one question I think that would be really interesting for the panel, because I've, I've walked it a number of times from Parkville to Arden, um, yes, the byline is it's the two-minute rail um, commute. But that is a pretty um, interesting walk if we consider it to be very similar to, say, Spring Street down to 
Elizabeth Street equivalent, which one would you want to be walking? Which one would you want to be cycling? And mm. perhaps there is some work to be done if there is a sense that they need to be physically connected. Mm. I'm not sure that they do because, as you're saying, Dan, with, with the likes of um, some of the, you know, the more lauded innovation districts, they actually are a lot more amorphic and it's mm -hmm. perhaps just to do with proximity and other attributes, you know, important things like um, like-minded kind of talent or yeah. family-friendly, all sorts of other attributes coming to it as well. But um, I think, as Sally said, they're very distinctively different in some regards. So from a health perspective, you know, it's, it's, I find it actually very telling that we are investing such a big amount in a big new acute hospital on that same small footprint campus. So big decision to do that. Highly contested real estate, really important in terms of what it brings to that broader precinct and vice versa. And then Arden, um, really important role of the hospital in that, in being quite catalytic in um, not only bringing an early could be earlier, critical mass of people. Um, but, but also, um, I think, setting an agenda for the really important, truly specialist innovation mm. um, uh, economies and health advancements, I think, that could be very unique to Melbourne. And in the end, we are in a sort of a global um, competition when it comes to seeking tenants on that site. Yeah. Um, Helen, I think you've sort of just touched upon it, but, you know, whether it's the precincts have two identities or there's one identity, you know, that we know there's the development of some major health institutions that will flavour both of these precincts. Um, could you explain in your role how you understand how a precinct could support the success of a hospital and how a hospital could mm. likewise support the success of a precinct? Yeah, so I think um, with regards to the first question, how the, the precinct can support the hospital, um, I think, you know, the hospital will be very reliant and there is an issue at the moment around um, workforce attraction. And I think if you have a, a good environment, which I think Parkville by world standards, you would say, is a very good environment, you're more likely to um, attract workers to that precinct and we know um, that workers currently will be travelling from further afield, way further afield, bypassing a number of other public hospitals just so they can really work in that precinct for all sorts of reason. But one is that um, atmosphere, if you like, and that um, quality of environment. So I think that's really key. Um, and. I think hopefully with Arden, I'd like to think that the precinct with the hospital coming early, government can play a really important role in setting a standard for the um, quality of infrastructure that's expected in that um, precinct. And likewise, um, Parkville government will have a very important role in not only state-of-the-art built infrastructure, but also its connections into that precinct and reinforcing that really important mutual advantage, advantage that both the health infrastructure and the precinct can provide to each other. And then I think, to your point, um, 
really important and probably a bit of a passion point of mine is that, um, and I think my colleagues say this, health traditionally hasn't necessarily been very good at um, their outdoor and public realm and their biodiverse infrastructure. Um, and I'd like to think that um, these projects can really start to be much more out, outward facing. Um, we can really start to hit some of the important targets in terms of carbon emission decrease and so on through those projects. So really benchmarking um, yeah. best practice as well. Um, there's health as in the hospital end of the problem. <laughs> And then there's the health that's generated in a place or diminished in a place. And I guess what I was saying, that Arden and Parkville both have two places, if we get them right, that make people healthier as a result of living there, just living there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that in a way, hopefully, preventing as many from possible are ending up at the hospital end of the problem. <laughs> so there's this, this kind of an interesting tension, to mm. on Sally's word there, but... Um, but that's the good, good tension, isn't it? Because you know, I, when I worked in the Swedish government, we, in 80% of the healthcare costs were coming basically from lifestyle-related um, issues one way or another, and 80% of them could be prevented, could be prevented mm -hmm. by largely changes of lifestyle if we en enabled people to live in a way that was, again, producing health rather than diminishing it. So I, I'd be really interested in how do we not just have a great hospital and health tech sector and all of those things? That's all fantastic. But then equally, how can both places be exemplars within Melbourne and beyond? But how do we design places that make people healthier as a result of living there? And then what is the relationship with the formal healthcare sector? That's really interesting, you know, because we've got to make a healthy place and we've got to make a thriving hospital sector as well at the same time. Yeah, I hope my graduate staff members in the audience here, because I've... Hello? Take yeah. note, I've, t <laughs> I've just tasked him up and the smart graduates in government to undertake that very piece of work. Well, it, so and it gets down to really nitty-gritty. Reconvene in 10 weeks' yeah, time. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> it gets down to really nitty-gritty stuff like access to biodiversity, green space, clean air, clean water, active transport, you know, good building design with good materials in it, social convivial spaces, blah, 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 blah. You know, again, the room knows what those things are probably. So it's how do we enable that that is positioned as a key outcome of the site. It's a healthier place in every sense of the word. Um, uh, another aspect of it is um, I co-supervised a number of um, student projects looking at health and biodiversity. And one of the projects was mapping green space on hospital campuses because working in hospitals is a very um, demanding job. Um, and there's a lot of research to show there's a lot of burnout, um, but also the benefits of restorative spaces um, and the benefits to patients recovering, families who are visiting, um, all sorts of things. So um, in Canada, they're proposing a 330-300 rule uh, for hospital campuses about how many trees you see outside your window, mm. how much green space is on the precinct, um, and then uh, how, how close is the next big green space? So we have an opportunity here to kind of think about that. Um, and another student um, who was doing um, a medical degree, she looked at um, nature prescriptions and how do we actually operationalise 
We know there's benefits from nature. Yeah. We know that it would be great if doctors could prescribe something. But what are the really important pro, um, elements of programs that mean people take it up and, it, and follow through mm. and get the benefits? And I think, um, you know, the Arden space being new, there's a real opportunity there to actually think about that aspect of it too. And I think on, on that note, um, really importantly, the City of Melbourne are leading um, to, the, to the western flank of, of the Arden, let's call it the innovation precinct where the hospital is, um, between, you know, really gritty terrain, City Link, Mooney Ponds Creek, Flood Zone, contaminated land, rail tracks, you name it's it. Beautiful. It's beautiful. there. But um, as always, the trailblazing um, city council have led on a just an absolutely complimentary and brilliant piece of work about the rewilding of um, mm. this space, fairly compromised, but absolutely transform, transformational. And I think back to your point, Sally, about where in government we can... Um, enable things, I guess, and then sort of stand back. Um, it, it was a real light bulb moment when Department of Health spoke with the City of Melbourne and realised that this was something that we could really amplify together. So work on it together, something that maybe traditionally hasn't been done as well as it could, but um, really not a difficult, not a difficult thing to do, but just um, required that sort of um, understanding, inter, in, you know, interrelationship and then apart from the will, then just um, finding ways, which we have, I think, yet to do, but I think there's an appetite and um, that that is just brilliant because that is literally um, outside patient windows, huge canopies, you can imagine birds and um, all the in, sort of insect and wildlife and all kinds of things. And, and it was interesting, that meeting, because I think the the officers, with all due respect to them, they were a bit on... I was like, that's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So it's... It helps with some of the flooding issues and yes. other practical things uh, that need to be addressed in the area as well. So that's important. Yeah, and building on that, understanding, you know, the public realm's impact on health and wellbeing. Um, Amy, maybe this one's for you with your background in ecology and biodiversity, but... How can the site's natural systems and associated public realm influence the development and implementation of an uh, innovation precinct or precincts? I think uh, one clear opportunity to kind of demonstrate innovation is in the Arden precinct, being very close to a water body, artificial light at night, shining on um, paved surfaces, gives a very similar signature to insects that as uh, moonlight on water. And so there's a growing body of evidence that um, how we're lighting our cities at night really is impacting on what biodiversity um, we have um, and can be very detrimental. And we know that um, light is really important for humans and our circadian rhythm. So there's a real opportunity in the Arden Precinct to think very innovatively about what does light in a city context look like? When I'm thinking about, uh, or in a project, thinking about biodiversity, I think firstly about what's there in that immediate landscape, not necessarily what's the really common species, but what are the ones that aren't only observed every now and then, 
um, but which could actually use a little bit more resource, a bit more habitat, a bit more opportunity. And they're the ones that I think about in terms of bringing them into a design context. Um, and in that area, thinking about what moves through trees, what flies, what sits along the ground, um, uh, all the different taxa. And um, not to make it really complicated, but, you know, get about 10 different examples of common functional groups and then how would you cater to each of those? And they'll be different in Arden than in Parkville, but there will be overlap and transition. Thanks, Amy. It's fascinating thinking about the intricacies of the ecosystem and thinking about it with such mm. care. Um, switch topics a little bit. Mina, this one's for you. You know, we know um, the two train stations, Arden and Parkville, the big pieces of transport infrastructure that are key to catalyzing these precincts, creating that five-minute connection between the two. But And it's you know, going to help people coming in and out of the city as well. But beyond just creating more efficient travel, how can we foster a sort of sense of community and belonging around these transport pieces? In a room full of industry experts, probably 50% of the answer. We need to go out there and we need to be speaking to the community that's part of that development, stakeholders, the community that already lives there in the established precinct and the one that's upcoming, and have policies in place that, that can be agile and can be adaptable as development happens so that you take people on that journey so that they have that stewardship, that ownership of what's happening within their community and within their areas and their neighbourhoods. Um, I think also that day one activation, which I know we've spoken a lot around our transport projects, that day one activation of what happens before everybody comes and moves, especially in Arden, you know, is it you build it and then they will come? What happens on that day one? How do you get the active transport, people walking, using the creek, etc. when the development hasn't happened yet and it's that timing that Sally was talking about. And so how do you get people to be part of the conversation and get them out there so it's that day one activation? Mm. Um, and then I think the physical aspects and attributes of the sites themselves, the precincts, they're very different. One is established and the other one is is emerging or um, developing and I think the physical attributes the way that they connect and seamlessly blend with each other but also the rest of Melbourne and that connection to the active transport um, is a big piece and to other modes of transport as well so we've got established tram lines within Parkville but not in Arden and so how do people get in and out of the site and how are we going to make sure there's no bottlenecks etc that you have in some of the emerging um areas within Melbourne and then physical constraints like what you have on the edge, the western edge of Arden with the train lines, with the creek itself, those are physical barriers that need solutions or um, uh, innovation to be able to blend them in with the rest of, you know, their surroundings. Mm. I could follow up briefly on that. I think there's this thing we sometimes get stuck on in the built environment business which like efficiency you mentioned, almost becomes a driver and, um, or an objective. And it, I'd argue it really should never be anywhere near an objective, to be honest, um, or at least a second or third order enabling thing. Like a train system has to be efficient, that's fine. But um, people move 
to cities for things that are largely inefficient, to be honest. And the point, the point of cities is really actually about inefficiency in lots of ways. So, you know, I might move to Melbourne to start a band or fall in love or write a book or become a famous doctor or, you know, like these are all inefficient things or play football with my kid in the park. You know, that's the joy of living in a city. Those sort of things, having access to that diversity of things. Now, there's a bunch of systems that you want to make efficient to enable me to get to the park or have the park nearby. Fantastic. But they're not the point. You know, and we have to be really clear, we don't make cities to make buildings. We don't make cities to make infrastructure. We make cities to make community or culture or conviviality or commerce, whatever. They'll begin with C in my head for some reason. <laughs> um, so we hold those things as objectives. Or we make it to make health now or biodiversity. You know, those are objectives, outcomes. And then we have a set of enablers that can get us there. So we, we need buildings to enable us to produce culture or health. But we can, as you know, we can often get it steered the wrong way around. And when you're in the middle of a project and somebody starts talking about value engineering or something, <laughs> it gets very difficult to steer it away from those efficiency drivers. So, Mina, your point about what do we start with is really powerful because if we said we want to start with a place that makes culture and commerce and conviviality, or um, we need to increase the amount of birdsong because we know that Birdsong is inversely proportional to traffic noise. And if we reduce traffic noise, we increase diversity of birdsong. If we increase diversity of birdsong, people's mental health improves. They recover from sickness quicker. You know, all of the science has done all of that stuff. So that's a great thing to start with. <laughs> you know, how do we then start from day zero, day one, and we start talking about the community, the place, how we're going to move around this? How do we see it from the point of view of the flora and fauna? Those are things we'll be cracking on with now. The buildings will come. You know, that's not a problem. That will happen. But we start with these other richer objectives. I think the sequence of the type of buildings that come as well, what's needed, whether it's the amenity type. So um, other precincts in Melbourne, maybe you're not familiar with them, didn't have the right type of amenities on day one, maybe... <laughs> I can think of one beginning with D, maybe. <laughs> Primary schools and things like that. So there's, there's the type of buildings that come first to attract people into the precinct. Um, primary schools, high schools, um, healthcare, <laughs> community hubs, places where the communities can come together, whether it's indoor or outdoor. Um, those type of amenities is what exactly. attracts people. And then it's the other types of developments. Maybe it's commons and things like that. Um, the day that the ANZ building opened completely changed Docklands in that little piece of Docklands because suddenly 6,000 people were there. And then, oh, maybe I'll set up a cafe and make, actually make some money. Oh, maybe I'll, um, you know, maybe I'll run some more trams down Collins Street. Oh, maybe we'll fast track Collins Street and do you know, build it out faster, all those sorts of things. So th there is something, I think, um, with Arden, the hospital there will, mm. um, and I think in Jan Gell's kind of terminology, um, it will create a necessary function which will really, if we like social engineering, plant some people there, which is really important. So um, I think it's a bit the both, and I think there's going to be some really heavy lifting to do in that space about temporary activation. But more than that, I think if we think about an example like the New Zealand waterfront projects that were really successful in just getting the community um, 
exposed to the opportunity, engaged. You know, that was really through a park project before anything really came on stream. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think will be really exciting um, and hopefully, um, fairly rapidly, some other um, significant bits of population and critical mass will be, mm. um, will, be, will be there in Arden and I think that's when you'll see the change. Um. From an ecological perspective, we always try and understand, like, how is the site currently being used um, by biodiversity? And I think there's an opportunity to kind of mirror that here. How are people actually currently moving through Arden already? Um, there'll be cyclists going up and down Mooney Ponds Creek. Is it worth putting in a little cafe and bike repair and, you know, just having it open on Saturday morning. Um, but, you know, starting to develop a sense of, oh, we stop there and have a coffee and continue on. As you said, it is both. I think it, uh, but we can start with the, all of those things you just said, Amy, right now. Um, Melbourne should be the best cycling city in the world, in my view, and it, it's, it's not, <laughs> despite all of our, many of our best efforts, including the city of Melbourne's efforts. But it's... It, it's fantastic, it potentially, and I'd be saying all of those streets are cycle paths, not just Mooney Ponds. It's like, that's what we need to think about, almost as the way the bird there sees the place is probably how I feel as a cyclist. You know, it's, you can move all the way through this in a quite complex way. And that's the kind of thinking we can start with right now, mapping those things and building those infrastructures. And, that, and to, your, to your point about the ANZ building, I think, um, building on what Mina said, that it, it's really... Um, we know we can build kindergartens and schools in from day one as well. So I know you didn't say this, but we don't have to wait for the, the anchor tenant and then follow with the infrastructure. They can both go in parallel because we know we need them anyway. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an investment in the future as opposed to a cost in that sense, if we flip it around like that. Um, and we've known that for 50 years, you know, <laughs> since, I mean, Amsterdam really got it wrong in the 60s when they started building out their large-scale things, and there are pictures of these enormous social housing blocks, that, and they didn't have schools, and they didn't have cafes, and they didn't have kindergartens and cycle paths. Now they've put them all in, of course, Amsterdam's really good at that, but we've known this for such a long time. So I think it's a case of making sure we're not asking the private developers to carry the weight fully. Again, you're not saying this, I know, but... We, we can move across both types of informal, formal, top-down, bottom-up, big, small, distributed, hierarchical, at the same time now. That's the, so the DNA of the place can then get it right from day one, I think. Building upon that, Dan, how do we ensure the design and delivery of these precincts respond to their distinctive context and, and ensure a connection to the place that can adapt, most importantly, over time. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've talked a bit about that, I suppose. So they, maybe the, the only thing I'd say is this shift. I think building on what Mina's been talking about, how do we do this in a genuinely participative way? Because then a place can adapt, as in it adapts around what people want to do with the city. They make the city, including the healthcare infrastructure as well as everyday citizens. Um, and that takes a different kind of city-making or city-using sensibility from designers and policymakers and politicians to want to engage with people meaningfully as a partner in building a place like that. And I think we can get there in Melbourne, for sure. And the other thing I haven't said would be there is a certain type of infrastructure which is adaptable, and then there's some that isn't. You know? And so 
it's frankly easier to adapt a um, an open systems designed, you know, let's say four to six story cross laminate timber modular building <laughs> than it is a 60 story tower, which has been largely designed for a single tenant or a series of tenants with a very similar business function. So one, the first one is more adaptable than the second one, right? Um, a distributed energy network is more adaptable than a, a single point, yeah. So. So what's interesting now is a lot of our technologies, uh, whether it's renewable energy or stormwater capture or Amy's amazing biodiversity stuff, seeing that as a kind of technology or modular fabrication, active transport, all of those things are heading towards that, that more decentralized, adaptable, lightweight, actually cheaper as well. They don't have big sunk capital costs, so I know we also need metros, that's fine. Um, we need both of those systems, but these other systems are the really adaptable ones. And you, know, you can't get the metro wrong, right? Because you're stuck with that for 150 years. <laughs> so it's, and it's not adaptable, is what I'm really. Uh, we can't say, oh, if all shit had been four streets to the left, it's like it is where it is. But all of those other things I just said, you can. Let's try this here, it didn't work. Okay, let's move it here, let's test this. And that's really amazing. We haven't really been able to do that before, much with cities, at least in the last 100 years. So there's a kind of an adaptability we need to build in on the culture side and the design process and the organization. But we also have a kit of parts which is now really malleable, and that's, that's super interesting. I've got a question for everyone now on the panel. I guess because we've got such a broad cross-section of the industry in the room here, um, and noting Mina and Dan's point that industry is only 50% of the solution, but we're you know we're all likely to be custodians of these these precincts in one way or another for the next year, 10 years, 100 years. So how can we foster a sense of shared responsibility for the success of these places? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with a couple of things. Um, Firstly, uh, I think in the environment we're in at the moment, it's really not just about the shared responsibility, but a real focus on risk and how do we actually manage risk together. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, issues in commercial environments where really too much risk uh, has been put on one party versus uh, shared risk. And I, I think that's a really worthwhile conversation for us to have, particularly government and uh, private sector and industry, but then across players, how do we do that better? Uh, and there's a lot of risk involved in what's required here, just the scale of it alone. Um, the second thing is, and I know Dan said, let's not start with efficiency at the top of what we're trying to achieve here. I love the sound of birdsong being at the top <laughs> of my objectives list. Uh, but, uh, you know, the unfortunate reality is that economic feasibility is absolutely uh, a number one consideration when we're looking at all of this. And again, why coming into forums like this is uh, interesting uh, for uh, government uh, because uh, we do have to maximise uh, commercial returns to deliver public benefit. That's unfortunately that tension. And how can we do that better with industry and with design outcomes right at the start? How do we deliver more biodiversity even if we've got to uh, commercialise more of the space? Um, how did we build that in at the start? Yeah. And I think that 
as well is part of that sharing of risk. Um, but I've, um, um, I don't want to be a, too much of a downer on my explosion. I started with a brilliant <laughs> fireworks and now I've come back to reality. But in uh, capital-constrained worlds that government's in, and I know industry is as well, this really is a time when we can push and shove each other to something better there. And look, the last thing I was going to say when we're looking at these two precincts is how do we leverage these for the benefit of the surrounding areas as well? In that part of our municipal municipality are some of the most needy communities and we have an opportunity here to elevate them in so many ways and we can't let these precincts uh, have walls or backs to uh, what is around them. So how do we integrate and actually focus on what those opportunities are? I really thought of that when Helen was talking about the opportunities that come from the hospital, knowing how many people are seeking job opportunities mm -hmm. and career pathways uh, in our social housing towers there. Uh, but we already have issues where they feel cut off just from one side of Alfred Street to the other or one side of Bunkle Street to the other and we can't let that happen as we look at the opportunities in, in these precincts. Yeah, and I think um, uh, one thing that government really does need to do without um, unnecessarily curtailing initiatives um, from the private sector is just be... Um, clear about what it is wanting. So I would say f for Arden, you know, there has been a big journey and probably many people in this room have put their finger on forming what essentially is a really excellent policy piece, covering off on many of those themes, but with a really significant consultation <laughs> backing it. I think it was the fastest, correct me if I'm wrong, um, exhibition rubber stamp phase because so much homework had been done and so much good work had been done. And equally, I think, with design, I think from the client side, do the good brief. There's another, another person I was working with today on a brief and we both thought, that is a good government brief. And it's easy, we both sort of reflected, it's easy not to do one. Oh, we, they'll do a return brief. They'll give us another return brief. So it's okay. But we must... I think from a government perspective, and City of Melbourne really does packet punch it's term, in terms of, you know, the local government sphere. Um, we, you know, we need to just be clearer. So whether it's um, really honing in on what those specialisations are in the um, innovation precincts, um, at least give the market that opportunity to understand cross-government what the positions are, I think um, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. And then equally coming from all those other good, you know, strands of um, policy, interdisciplinary, yeah. values-driven work, <coughs> equally just, um, I think, step up, particularly in this environment too that we're in, um, that Sally referred to. I mean, the only other thing I think that is interesting is perhaps the assumption that used to be made about the private sector perhaps not performing to the sort of levels of design quality that government were perhaps wanting, I think I'm often questioning, hmm, I think we're converging and converging more and more. And I think that could be a very interesting discussion with the audience that we have here. So from the private um, development sector, um, 
what are some of the um, conversations that are occurring um, being prioritised around that shared piece um, that's been referred to? I agree with both of those points. I feel like I've become the voice of birdsong on the panel. I didn't, but I mean it to be as much as I like birds. Yeah, it could be worse, I suppose. But the, um, if I think of, you know, I've often worked on cities or public projects and so on. But the two most commercial ones I've worked on in the last four years, one was by Alphabet, Google's Sidewalk Labs, looking at Sidewalk Toronto. And the other one was uh, last year, Toyota Woven City, which is outside Tokyo, which is a chunk of land that Toyota owned, their former manufacturing site. So imagine it's a bit like Fisherman's Bend, but with Mount Fuji next to it, so not like Fisherman's Bend at all. <laughs> but it's, um, nonetheless, it's an amazing space that they're building out a 6,000-person um, chunk of city. And within that, it's all cross-laminate timber buildings, full biodiversity, no cars whatsoever. This is Toyota doing this. Uh, it's all bikes, walking, and autonomous shuttles, you know, sort of trundling people around. Um, so we get birdsong out of that, actually, because there's no cars. And there's tons of biodiversity. But it could not be more commercial. <laughs> it's led by Toyota. You know, they're not doing it for altruistic reasons, necessarily. And this is your point, I suppose, about public and private can converge on a set of really strong shared outcomes. Again, their drivers are health, sustainability, biodiversity, because they know ultimately that there is a also, if there is value in that stuff, there is financial value in that stuff. I that's that's Toyota and Google talking. It's not um, World Health Organization or someone. Are some of these companies also being driven by the new workers who are probably highly values driven? So to attract those workers, um, sure, that's a commercial element, but it's almost sort of voting with your feet, really. To, yeah, <laughs> which no, is a good thing. It's definitely it's, there. It's and, common. you know, the sustainable development goals and everything around us, but all companies are orient, reorienting around them. I think it's more that, again, they know the technologies are capable of it. This gives them a purpose, a sense of purpose, and there'll be value in that. Um, but it's remarkably similar, uh, let's say, as an urban development project to what's also happening, say, in Berlin or Amsterdam. It's the same kind of conditions emerging from all sides now. So we've got to ask ourselves, how do we get this better than that, <laughs> ultimately? How do we lift this to be the uh, Champions League level, if that stuff is Premier League? Sorry to use English football metaphors. <laughs> Hopefully they translate. <laughs> As someone kind of a bit more distant from shaping, directly influencing and shaping these precincts, um, I think... The challenge is that um, they're presented as new, whereas the really activated parts of our cities are blend of old and new and all different stages in between. Um, and so um, my family and I have just discovered Easy Street in Macaulay Road in Arden Street, and it's just so fun to go there. All, all the different food, it already has its own kind of sense of community developing around it. And so I think finding those existing little activated sites and including them and maybe, you know, bringing them a bit further in to the precinct or, or similar initiatives yeah. is important. I think um, the other aspect I've observed is that often um, the project has the funding, but the 
um, kind of operationalizing has much less. And in some ways, um, uh, just from working with lots of different uh, organizations, if you develop a strategy, that's amazing, but it's actually um, putting the budget behind the different delivery of the things that you said that actually means you deliver on your strategy. And so I think thinking about how are you going acti to activate the space and what's the um, kind of program element that you're bringing in, which has been part of this conversation um, in the kind of lead up and then carrying it through. Thanks for the uh, great panel and great thoughts. Um, this, the Arden Precinct is largely going to be built out for a different climate, the climate we've had in Melbourne for when, when Dockland was done or even when the large development at the top end of Elizabeth Street was done. Um, it's going to be a, a much, much hotter climate, and um, that's going to affect the way in which people walk around in a walkable city, and it's also going to go and impact on the quality of the spaces that people are going to be in. Uh, I mean, I, I still look on around on a lot of Zoom calls at the moment, and there's a lot of people in Melbourne wearing puffer jackets in the middle of winter, which says to me that we haven't quite got our housing quality right. So my question to the panel is, both from a, a biodiversity point of view and from a building quality point of view, how can we make um, Arden different, different to Docklands, different to the development that's gone on before? And is the development market up for that? And, or does there need to be some kind of incentives? What, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? I think I can start. I think we were just talking about um, increasing the bike paths, etc. But it's actually really uncomfortable to be in Melbourne when it's above 26 degrees. It's actually horrible to walk around, use public transport, etc. And so that investment in canopy cover, tree canopy cover from the beginning is really important. And then I think from a... There is something about efficiencies in the way that we look at plans as a 2D um, drawing or a diagram, but actually the sustainability aspect of orientation and using sustainability, sustainability fundamentals at that master planning stage is really important. And it's not just pattern making, it's actually orientation, optimising passive ventilation, solar gain, etc. into that process, I think is really important, but that all depends on the efficiencies and what you can get out of plot sizes, etc. Uh, having the connection to the creek, having greater connection across the, the land um, provides biodiversity with an opportunity to move in response to those changes in climate. Thinking about the complementarity of the built and the na surrounding natural landscape and how, how do they actually work together? So what sits outside a window? <laughs> um, and, you know... Um, what does the, the streetscape look like um, uh, relative to the buildings and how do they talk to each other? That would be a great kind of design driver, wouldn't it, Jeff? To sort of what's, let's think about the climate and understand that and feel it. Um, something you and I have talked about before, it's probably going to be more humid as well as hotter. So it's not just that it's getting hotter and it's not you know, getting necessarily more like a, a Middle Eastern climate. It's actually more... Uh, humid than Victorians are probably used to. So that comes back to particular kinds of insulation, 
as you know, full well passive house, for instance, and related. There you go, I said it. Did you, want me, you wanted me to say it, right? <laughs> um, but no, it's, it is that, absolutely. And that's, that's why people are wearing puffer jackets, obviously. And then baking in summer, we, we're, we've built glorified tents for a long time, and we need to do a lot better with our building stock, with direct health outcomes, therefore direct financial outcomes around those things as well. Then the rest of it is, as you said, it's like how do we shift from a hardscape dominated environment to something far more soft, porous, green, reducing urban heat island effect. And then you know, there are other things that can help as well. I cycle an e-bike and actually um, that massively helps. I cycled that in 35 degrees in Melbourne and it's still okay, right? So it's kind of, it does change the game a bit, that kind of thing. So yeah, technologies traditional natural approaches or re re recovering the nature that which is there and then really different building codes and planning guidelines ultimately. Sounds boring that last bit but that's absolutely fundamental. Yeah. No, I think that's key and, and um, the health sector is one of the highest emitters of um, carbon um, and that's, as you can imagine, what, what what kind of a machine that, that is, the hospital, and, and why it's probably in some regards, if you like to think about life-saving um, situations, it's, it's in that kind of vein. But I think, um, suffice to say, fortunately, state government has really elevated um, the targets. And I think, as you say, Dan, once that starts to hit the regulatory um, chain, that, that probably in, in the end is the the proof in the pudding, but hopefully out of that become, comes the innovation as well. So just in terms of the things that I think you know quite a bit about. Um, but it is important that, that government sets that um, agenda right at the top yeah. and um, and it's it's a, a stick, but hopefully with some, um, some, some carrots incentivising and um, bringing forward innovative technologies and, and systems because I think in the end, yeah, that systems approach is probably the key. Um, and I'm always interested in the governance around that too. You know, that is the, that is the hard, harder, but probably the most, um, you know, will be the most effective. Uh, sorry, there's one, there's one system I forgot in my list, which is social infrastructures in a heat context. So there's a great book by Eric Klinenberg, a sociologist, about the Chicago heat wave in 1995. I think it's called heat wave or heat or something. And he maps um, who uh, significant numbers of people died in the city and he maps why they died actually and they did a lot of research on that. And it wasn't whether they were rich or poor necessarily. It wasn't, didn't split easily. The thing they actually found was did they have social infrastructures in their neighborhoods? And by social infrastructures, I just mean a library, community center, swimming pool, could be a cafe even. And the neighbourhoods that did better in the heat wave were those where people could go and get help from there or access or just solace or connection and <clears throat> massively important. Far more than actually the emergency response was the presence of those things. And that's again where a city, you know, City of Melbourne is a great library network for instance, but that's exactly where those kinds of things are equally part of the systemic approach. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, probably most people in this room will have clocked that, um, you know, the way forward with health will be not that, um, I guess, panacea of having to go to the hospital. So I think that might be part of that approach as well. So, you know, if you don't need to be in the hospital, don't be in the hospital. Um, and 
and, you know, that notion of, you know, health in the home might be part of that, um, taking the pressure even off the energy systems in the hospital. But yeah. Can I just jump in? Um, the other thing, we're all very familiar with the idea of ecosystem services, um, but I think uh, thinking about the plants that are going to need to survive in this future climate, they're going to be under additional challenges. And so can we flip it and think about built environment services to eco ecosystems? And so the shape of the housing, how does sunlight get into our street areas does it actually, you know, shade and shelter during the most hottest parts of the, the day? Or um, I think that's a real opportunity to kind of innovate. And I think those things that are innovation, lots of other countries who have that climate already did that mm. many, many, many years ago. It's their vernacular, the way that they design and build. And to actually learn from that now and incorporate that into design as well as the innovation piece and the technology is yeah. the way mm. that will I mean, build that resilience into the precinct. Yeah, and look, the Arden structure plan is pretty advanced. I mean, you've got, what, the 10% um, car only, so 90% active transport commitment. Now, that puts a challenge on a hospital because there are, you know, people come to hospitals in cars and go home from hospital, maternity hospitals in cars and so on. So anyway, that's the tension point, um, needs resolution. Um, you know, you've got the fantastic water infrastructure, cooling, cleaning, I mean, really taking advantage of that place and space. Um, really good public realm at the outset, the amazing rewilding, you know, canopy and canopy right through. So, yeah, I think, Jeff, that... That has to be the opportunity, doesn't it, to really benchmark something that's that's pretty special and hopefully drives down, plays a little bit of a role in driving down some of the temperatures. Thanks, everybody. It's been a very interesting discussion so far with atoms and birdsong, etc. <laughs> I really wanted to hear a bit more from those on the panel because I know how much experience some of you have um, around innovation precincts. Um, you know, what we're trying to create here is an innovation precinct somewhere that turns new ideas into new products and services in the place. Um, Parfield's really special, produces 40% of Melbourne's research. You know, it's right up there as far as new ideas are concerned and right up there as far as world-class new ideas are concerned. But I think many of us know that Australia's not so great when it comes to knowledge diffusion. So getting those new ideas and turning them into real products and services, getting commercial value from them. A report that I read just recently by the World Intellectual Property Organisation placed Australia at number 73 mm. when it came to knowledge diffusion and there weren't too many others on the list below us. So <laughs> we were pretty much down the bottom as far as knowledge diffusion, so getting value from what we're producing. Arden's a bit of a distance from Parkville, not too far, mm. but a bit of a distance that's not something that's happened naturally in Parkville, turning into uh, an amazing commercial ecosystem. What kind of things do, are you thinking about when you're thinking about how to make Parkville uh, an innovation precinct where there's a, a real place-based advantage to being there and turning our amazing research into new stuff? Yeah, maybe I'll start. I'm in the headspace. But um, so, Vanessa, we're talking about Parkville plus a bit of Arden because I think probably that commercialise 
Asian aspect and, you know, obviously there have been some phenomenal um, outcomes from research in terms of that commercialisation piece and not discounting that R&D also plays its role in pure medical advancement. That's, that's quite key too, mutually reinforcing. But I do think perhaps one of the opportunities for Arden, given, you know, there's going to be a lot more potential for curation at the outset and is perhaps baking in some of those um, enablers that are going to uh, allow for that more advanced development of research and then into commercialisation. So the likes of whether it's venture capital presence or accelerators, more flexible incubators, um, more loose governance arrangements, so sort of bump in, bump out. Perhaps there is, you know, also merit in drawing some of that, um, the heavyweights, the credibility, the, the gravity out of Parkville into Arden too. I think that's always a good um, urban strategy. When you've got some quality, try and bring the quality with you if you're in the seeding phase. Um, so I think that's, that's my sense, that's just my own sense, that there is that really big opportunity to bring in, and, and you'll know better than me what some of those are, some of those really important um, conditions are, preconditions to really set that. And I think that goes back to, as well, government making some commitment to that. Um, and I imagine, not sure, but maybe the private sector's on board with that too. One of the things we're focused on is how do we bring what's happening inside those buildings and mm. institutions out into the public realm? How do we plan well for that? And uh, the Melbourne Innovation District, which is uh, a project between University of Melbourne, RMIT and the city, is looking at this at the moment uh, in an existing uh, urban realm. Uh, and uh, it's started with us reshaping some of those urban realms uh, to create uh, curiosity and exploration, to encourage collaboration and to bring the concepts of the research out into the public realm on the basis that it's not always the people that are doing the R&D inside the institution that are going to be best placed to uh, commercialise or diffuse that that knowledge, uh, and we're starting to see more of that as we deliver, firstly, more connections uh, in the urban realm between the institutions and really open up those spaces uh, for uh, collaboration uh, in the public realm. Uh, but we recently delivered a park in Carlton, which captures some of the research happening inside around human movement uh, and energy and brings it out into the park for people to see some of the research outcomes in real time. Uh, and it's really generated a lot of fantastic uh, conversations. Mm. So we'd be wanting to build that into uh, not just retrofitting Parkville, but of course into the uh, public realm in, in Arden. Mm. I think it's a well, really good a point. <laughs> yeah. um, some of the planners in the room will remember the early days of Arden was very broad-reaching. So, you know, it was, it was north, central, you know. And part of me, it's always a question that keeps me awake at night. Do we just have to create, let's say, design, planning, working systems that 
a collective is able to sort of adequately is not the right word, but do do we just as humans, do we sort of reduce down to a system that we can cope with, if you like? So that's always a, a question for me because master planning, you know, it's that dirty word of, oh, it's so reductive. And rah, rah, rah. Mm. But it is interesting because the very early plans I'm going back uh, over 10 years ago now. They were much more broad-reaching, but then then the divisions started happening and part of me thinks that was probably just almost administrative in its essence. It doesn't answer your question, but it, um, um, I think it's a, a really good point and I think um, even when the best planning actually, at least at a, in a physical way, takes in its broader, it quite quickly as the implementation occurs, so whether it's the business case or someone buying the, that bit of land quite quickly, um, and I can see Jill in the room there, you would know this, it comes down to the red line. And then whether it's that the designers are not being paid to really look further afield or the brief just, just hasn't acknowledged it, Again, it's how much can be dealt with within the time that you've got to work. You know, it, it, there is a phenomenon of that happening. I'd like to think because the architectural gold medal this year went to um, the student precinct at University of Melbourne, which was a, a full collaboration of a number of practices that was really more about, I guess, um, analysing, appreciating, diagnosing and dealing responsibly with what was there. And um, that, to me, I cried because it's like this is about more than the, the, red line. <laughs> the neat little red line in the building. It's actually very much that respect of being in a place, making careful observations. Um, so perhaps more of that we need to be on our radar. Yeah, I think it's that process of co-design as well. And so that stakeholder engagement and community facilitation isn't just the red line or the sort of the darker bit of the map. It talks to those other communities who are adjacent to Arden itself. And then I think, I can't remember who was talking about, I think it was Amy, she was talking about the place for food. There's also a risk of gentrification mm. as well. And that's a really <coughs> important part of that co-design community consultation process to make sure that the people who are on that journey also are part of the precinct in the long term as well to grow and shape and make and play there and yeah. it's it's for them rather than sort of contributing to all of that and it becomes you know overpriced etc and everyone else moves in that's really important point and um thank you for gentrification, because there's a great book by Leslie Kern, gentrification is not inevitable. It doesn't have to happen. So if it happens, it was actually an implicit goal of the project. <laughs> it wasn't stated ever, I'm sure. But we know it, what it is, we know how it happens. So if it happens again, that was on purpose, effectively. So we have to be really careful with this. I don't think these boundaries exist at all. I know why you've drawn the... I'm not even criticising your drawing. Because <laughs> we know the way the city is experienced and used, which actually comes back to your previous question about the innovation that we might need there, is far more weaving together flows, systems, cultures that move quite fluidly across space. It's not like a, if I take a step to the left, I'm in Arden, and I take 
step to the right, I'm in Parkville, and if I head that way, I'm in North Melbourne. It's very, very fluid. We don't think like that at all in reality, of course. So that's just a property question, and there's an economics to that which is really important, but it doesn't have to come out in the way we think about the project. So there's no, there's no reason why your, um, your critique has to come true you know, at all. We'd know how to do this participative urban development and to see that there's systems. Um, and these are really artificial, arbitrary boundaries that we've drawn around them in reality. So it comes back to, I think, again, Mina, you said earlier, starting with the culture of the place and the participation, it would immediately surface your question really well, I think. And that, to build on your point, is probably the kind of innovation we also need. <laughs> So it's not an innovation district based around sectors and disciplines. That's old thinking again. It's not like the health sector is separate to the economy, separate to the climate. So maybe like building on Jeff's question, what's our next climate is also what's our next economy. And the reason that Australia is so low down that list is because, you know, at the national level, we have very low economic complexity, as in our economy has been geared for a long time around one or two or three sectors which just perform incredibly well financially without having to be particularly innovative. Sorry to anybody in the room. I don't mean in a demeaning way. It just resources and agriculture and things like that. That's what they do. So we haven't had to produce economic complexity. We don't have the diversity of the economy that we will need for the next economy, for the next climate. That's a brilliant challenge to throw at this. Because it comes back to then, how do you have people from different disciplines bumping into each other in really complex environments all the time? Uh, difficult ideas butting up against each other. Um, we don't do that at the moment. Amy and I are starting next week. Uh, she's doing an elective. I'm doing a studio. We just discovered on the same thing. <laughs> We're in the same university. <laughs> she happens to be in a different faculty to me. We're both looking at streets and biodiversity. That's the way we've structured previously. We have to unpick all of that stuff and say this is a much more complex weave that makes the next city for the next economy, for the next climate. Um, that also includes the social fabric knitted together, not, not as seen as a separate goal. So, sorry, I'm trying to weave now together 15 conversations. But that, that gives us a design driver for what that place might feel like. Thank you, Dan, for so beautifully summarising the whole theme of the panel discussion. Um, I'll take this note to, to wrap it up. So I'd really love to thank our wonderful panel, Sally, Amy, Helen, Dan and Mina. Thank you so much for your insight and, and time and just wonderful discussion tonight. Also, thank you for, to the organising committee, um, most of you sitting up on the stairs up there. Um, and thank you to everyone in the room for... Um, spending your time here tonight, your wonderful questions, standing when you could be sitting for a very long time. Please stay and enjoy the drinks and the food and some good chats. Thank you.